Happy Father's Day again. Thank you. What a beautiful song. And children are dismissed at junior church. I think they just kind of remained after their presentation. Uh, my kids are correct. Uh, I do not sing. What do they say? What he's not good at is singing. Uh, that is correct. If they stand next to me in a worship service two weeks ago after the service, I went to another church and I gave the same message outside. There's a small church out near Alliance that's been struggling. They don't have a pastor, so I've been pulpit supply about once a month for them, although, although two weeks ago was my last time. And um, Mercedes went with me. And she's standing next to me in the songs, and they have little printouts for the song sheets. And she noticed very quickly, I don't sing the right words. It's not just I'm off key. The words are wrong. Everything else. My mind's usually, if I have to preach or do the message, I'm folk, my mind's elsewhere sometimes, which really isn't right. It's nice to go somewhere and just be able to focus on worshiping and song. At the church I served in Alliance once, I noticed a good friend's daughter. She was a teenager at the time. Uh, she's married. I had the honor of officiating her wedding a year and a half or so ago and actually two years ago and she was in the choir loft which was kind of in the front and I'm kind of in the front and it's Christmas Eve and she realized real quick in the Christmas Eve service I'm trying to sing but I started this I started the verse two at the wrong point or something which she had to tease me about afterwards but that song the power of the cross uh written by Kristen Getty um well actually no it's it's a Getty song but it's different songwriters um I want to mention it because sometimes I think we think we're singing for the person next to us. I'm not just trying to excuse my sinful singing, uh, but sometimes we think it's about performance. And I want to encourage you, notice these powerful words as we sing to the Lord. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross of wood. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. But we stand forgiven at the cross. He did that, and we stand forgiven. So when we sing, we're, medit- we're singing out these words. We're, we're singing the gospel. When we sing these songs, we're singing the gospel. We're singing the gospel. We're praising God for the gospel, for the power of the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, the passion of the Christ. Jesus took all that pain, and we see that in the, in the movies and things. It, what, what it can't show is Jesus' pain of taking sin. Jesus took sin totally against him, forever, eternally, eternal past, eternal future, sin totally against his very being. Sin is against his very nature, and he took the weight of sin upon himself. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, and we stand forgiven. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath. Quakes as his maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead or raised to life, finish the victory cry. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath, we wet wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see my name. You can put your name there. Written in the woods. For through your suffering, I am free. Death is crushed to life. 
Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. Through his suffering, we are free. Through his suffering, we are adopted. Called a friend of God. Called a brother of Christ or a sister of Christ. We cry out, Abba, Father, we are free. This is a powerful song and I just had to comment on it. Being a father is such a joy. I heard somebody at my last church would say, God gave us children to give us emotions uh, we did not know existed. And those emotions could go both ways, right? Uh, He told me once that in the same week he was in the principal's office for both his kids, one to talk about his daughter's excellence, excelling, and one to talk about struggles in school with his son so we can have emotions of frustration, of maybe anger, of love, of mercy, of grace, of worry, right? Of worry, of fear of the future. I am a pretty, I can be a stoic person. I've taken the Myers-Briggs test a number of times. I don't really have many emotions, at least not on the outside. I do, I mean, I do have some. I just don't let them be known. But when both my children were born, there were just indescribable emotions, I mean, it's just a powerful miracle of life. And even to this day, about six weeks ago, I was running the Pittsburgh Half Marathon, and I realized this is, I forgot, so much fun. I had done three full marathons, and now doing a half marathon again, it was so much fun. There was thunder and lightning. It just added to it. It was raining. It was cool. It was really fun. And, and I was thinking, how nice it'd be, how neat it'd be to do this with my kids. And so the next day I said, Mercedes, would you like to uh, try running with me again? She tried a few years ago and, and struggled. And, and I want to be careful pushing her too hard lest she doesn't enjoy it. It's got to be fun. And so she said, yeah. And many of you said, I saw I posted on Facebook last week that she uh, made it 6.23 miles in the heat. And that's because Mercedes is extremely determined. <laughs> she is a strong-willed woman. If there was a fire breakout in the sanctuary, don't worry. Mercedes will tell you exactly what to do. You know, she would be glad to boss anyone around. Uh, she is that way. Now, Abigail, on the other hand, she's our more introverted daughter. And we've invited her on... And she's ridden bike with me as I've ran. And it is such a joy having our kids with us just for the tasks of life. And, and I'm, I'm sure that many of you have that same experience. It may not be running or, walk, or biking with your kids. It might be something else, baking or something else that you love doing or cooking out on the grill. I heard one of your daughters, I think it was Katie, said that Kevin cooks good hamburgers. So maybe it's things like that or, you know, whatever it might be or taking your kids to work with you. What a joy it is to watch our kids grow up. And I think it's true. They grow up quickly. But one other joy is leading our kids spiritually. And yesterday we had a great, 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 great um, um, men's and families uh, cookout. And Bill talked extensively with a great message about leading our kids spiritually and talking about that. And I want to talk about the scriptures and the image of God as our father. We see this idea in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament of God as our father. You know, there's plenty to get into with this subject, but I want to talk about one of the parables that Jesus told, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. 
Jesus tells a story in which the father in the story represents God. It's in, it's in Luke 15, if you want to turn there with, with me. And actually, I want to get a pew Bible out so that you can see exactly the page number we need to go to. Last week, I announced that because of some generous donations, we were able to purchase new pew Bibles. And they're all the same translation, the English Standard Version, the ESV. And I'm invite, I would invite you all to turn in here. Now, if you brought your own Bible, you want to turn there, that's okay too. Or you use the Bible on your smartphone phone app. That's fine too. Just stay away from the Facebook and Twitter for just a few minutes. You'll be okay. Um, Luke 15, and this begins on page 821 in the Pew Bible, page 821, and going to page 822. Just take your time turning there. I'm going to read the parable in its entirety in just a moment. As I talk about this parable, I want to show that this parable shows us that God is a father to us. And as a father to us, he persistently desires for us to come to him. Jesus tells this parable describing God like a father who persistently desires a relationship with us. Jesus describes God like a father who persistently desires a relationship with us. When we come to God, he welcomes us regardless of what we have done in our past. When we come to God, that's important. When we come to God, he welcomes us regardless of what we have done in our past. He is a forgiving God. He wants to forgive us. He wants a relationship with us. A current scripture I've been praying and meditating a lot on a lot from the Holy Spirit's conviction is 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9. I'm just going to summarize part of it. It's that God is patient, waiting, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The people in 2 Peter were, the people 2 Peter was written to were questioning, when is God going to come back? When is he going to restore all creation? When is, when is he going to make everything new and everything right and get rid of death and get rid of pain and get rid of suffering? And maybe you ask the same questions. We all do. Well, Peter had an answer. God is patient. He's waiting because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God has not come back. Jesus has not come back yet because he wants us to continue to spread the gospel because he wants a relationship with every man, woman, and child. He wants everyone to have that opportunity to share the gospel. If you want to speed Jesus' second coming, share the gospel. You want to speed Jesus' second coming, fund the Great Commission. You want to speed Jesus' second coming, pray for the lost. Jesus desires a relationship with every man, woman, and child. Jesus desires a relationship with you and with me Regardless of what we have done in our past, Jesus wants a relationship with us. And sometimes we get that guilt within us, right? And we think, no, 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 no. He can't. I know, I know, I know the scriptures say he would forgive us, but he can't. I've done so much. He, he wants to forgive you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. When we think that Jesus can't forgive us or doesn't want to forgive us or we're just too dirty or too, too full of sin, we are diminishing the importance and the power and the significance of the cross. You're saying what Jesus went through on the cross wasn't enough. But you know what? What Jesus went through on the cross was more than enough. And in this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is showing God is like a loving father watching for us to come home. God is like a loving father looking out the front door. When is my son, my daughter going to come home? When are they going to come home? I want them back. They've strayed from me. They've ran away. I want them to come back. And when... That child comes home. The loving father runs 
to the child. My theme today is Jesus tells a parable describing God's desire for a relationship with us, like a father wanting a relationship with his wayward son, or you could say wayward child, but it's a son in the parable. That's saying that that's, that's, that's saying this sermon in a sentence, saying it in a sentence. Jesus tells a parable describing God's desire for a relationship with us like a father wanting a relationship with his wayward son. I need to make a disclaimer. Parables are not allegories. They are stories with a purpose. They are stories that come alongside, come alongside the teaching. Uh, actually, the word parable, para means alongside. And so it has the idea of casting something alongside of, an, of a teaching to illustrate. They're illustrative stories. In this case, the purpose is to show that lost people matter to God. Lost people matter to God. Do lost people matter to you and to me? To do this, to show that lost people matter to God, Jesus told a story about a wayward son and how the father longs for him to come home. Maybe we can make some indirect applications to parenting. But the main point of the parable is that God is a loving father longing for a relationship with us. I share that disclaimer to say the main point of the parable is not parenting. The main point of the parable is not even necessarily 10 points on God as our father. You can find lots of different systematic scriptures for that. The main point is God is like, like a loving father desiring a relationship with his wayward son, his prodigal son. That's the main point. Let's read the parable in its entirety. Luke 15, 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32, pages 821 and 822 in your pew Bible. Or you can follow along in even the sermon notes um, if you have them. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, he's talking to himself. That's okay. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him and his father felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, Back in the back 40, truly, really, the scene shifts. 
the scene is shifting to the older son. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come and your father has killed the fat calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, this is the older son talking to his father. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, but when, notice, notice this attitude. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father in the parable represents God the father. The wayward son, the prodigal, represents us. The older brother represents the Pharisees. If you look at the beginning of Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're grumbling. They're complaining. You don't want to do that. Jesus knows it. Jesus heard their grumbling and complaining, and he told a parable, and he made them the illustration. He did. He said, I'll tell them. He told three parables. Three parables. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost son. And all three parables were showing that lost people matter to God. God cares about that lost, that wayward child. God cares about the lost coin. God cares about the lost sheep. And the older brother represents these Pharisees, these tax collectors, these, these people that are grumbling, especially the Pharisees, mainly the Pharisees. So I want to talk about the illustration of a son who goes wayward. He calls this parable the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal means extravagant or wasteful. As heard in the parable, the son wastes his father's money. There are two sons in this parable. And the younger tells his father that he wants his share of the estate. Now, you must know there are at least two problems, two problems with that. The, the, when, when the younger son says, I want my share of the estate, the younger son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just die and give me my share. And it's insulting. Regardless of the insult, the father divides the inheritance between his two sons. This is the second problem. According to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 7, the elder son was supposed to receive a double portion, but it was divided equally. Jesus is showing that regardless of what we do, God is our father, and as our father, he welcomes us into loving arms. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus shows in the parable that the son takes his father's money, and he leaves. Jesus says that he wasted his wealth with wild living. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what all the wild living was. Later, the older brother says he wasted it on prostitutes and things like that. You know, I don't think he has to tell us what wild living looks like. Some of us have been there. Some of us have had children, grandchildren that have been in wild living, and you pray for them. You pray for them every day. You care for them. You, you love them. You want them to come home. 
Verses 15 and 16 show that now this son is feeding pigs. Pigs were an unclean animal in Judaism. So for Jesus' audience, this is a big deal. This is the lowest of the low. This is showing how low the younger son's station in life is. It's so low that he's feeding pigs. He's feeding unclean animals. But Jesus is setting this up to show the great, great love of God, our Heavenly Father. Sink as low as you want. God wants a relationship with you. God wants you to come home. Now, get this. The younger son still needs to repent. He has to start journeying back. The father let him go. So this is grace and truth here. Sometimes we would think, no, no, no. This God the Father is accepting us in our sin. Yeah, he does, but, he, but we are called to repent too. Verses 17 through 19 show that the son is, my next point, repentant. He realizes what has happened to his station in life. He's ready to confess this to his father. In verses 20 through 24, it, show that, it shows that as he comes back to his father, his father sees him from a distance and runs to him. We also see that his father wants to throw him a party to welcome him home. I imagine his father getting up every day, looking out to the road, thinking, maybe today my son will come home. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. Maybe it's not for your son, it's for your grandchild. It's for someone else, another loved one. Maybe they'll come home. That's what I imagine. I imagine the father blocking the sun from his eyes, looking out, and he sees his son come home. He sees his son come home. As the son comes home, he pulls up his robe. He tucks it in his belt so he can run. He runs to him, hugs him, embraces him. It was a breach of an adult man's dignity to run back then. Adult men weren't supposed to run. He didn't care. He didn't care about that. He saw his son in the distance and he ran to him. And that's what God uses to describe God's love for us. That when we repent, he is so excited. He runs to us. The Bible says there is more joy in the angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. God wants a relationship with us. This is the parable that Jesus tells to describe God's love for us. When I was at Cedarville University as a sophomore, there was a chapel message, and at the beginning of the chapel, Craig and Rachel were there. They remember this, right? You know exactly what I'm going to talk about. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and they had a young lady share a dramatic reading of this. It wasn't really a reading. It was like a modern-day rendition. And I loved it because she described going wayward, and as she comes home, her father runs to her, and she starts to repent. She starts to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your daughter. And she couldn't get those words out. He covered her mouth, and he said, Hush, we have to get to the party. I imagine the father that way. Hush, I know you're repenting. You don't need to say it. We're going to throw a party for you. I'm so excited for you to come home. Jesus is showing how eager God the Father is for a relationship with us. You know, I've noticed the joys of parenting are great, and uh, Mercedes is going to turn 11, and I've just noticed the joys. Abigail's eight and a half. But with the joys come the greater responsibility in being hurt because you know that your child, whom you greatly love, is in a bad situation in life. Some of you have been there, um, possibly even there now. Some of us can hear this story, and, and we think differently about it. Maybe, maybe we think like the eldest son. 
We see his reaction in verses 25 through 32. The eldest son th- thought only on the side of truth. Capitalized truth. Capitalized T and R and U-T-H. All truth. No grace. There is grace here. And there is truth here. Notice the son had to repent. But the eldest son is only on truth. His thinking is that the younger brother made his decisions and he should live with them. But I think, no matter what, the outer son cannot see things the way a parent would. That outer son just can't think about watching the boy learn to walk. Rocking him to sleep at night. Teaching him to fish. School programs. Working alongside him in the fields. In that day and age, the, son, the, father, the father would see all the emotions of raising that son, of raising that boy. A parent thinks with their emotions. And even when our child is in the thick of something... We can imagine all the way back to babyhood, right? I was convicted by this when I was talking with a parent at my last church whose son was deep into drugs. And it convicted me. We might see the kid in drugs right now. The mom sees the baby that she rocked to sleep, rocked to sleep at night, that she watched learn to walk and all these other things. And we need the emotions too, full of truth and full of grace. I believe that God made us emotional because I think God has emotions. The father in this parable is clearly God. And when we are in in the filth of life, we are in bad situations, we are in bad situations, I think that God hurts. Some of you know what it's like to hurt and ache and lose sleep because your child is in a bad situation. Then I think you know a small element of how God feels when we are in a bad situation. God grieves and God hurts. Then when we choose to come back to God, he runs to us and he throws a party in heaven. He throws a party. Slay the fattened calf. No matter the cost, my son, my child has come home. A man was commissioned to paint a picture of the prodigal son. Some of you have heard this story, but it bears repeating. A man was commissioned to paint a picture of the prodigal son. He went into his work fervently, laboring to produce a picture worthy of telling the story. Finally, the day came and the picture was complete and he unveiled the finished painting. He unveiled the finished painting, the, the painting of the prodigal son, the painting of the son coming home and embracing the father. The scene was set outside the father's house and showed the open arms of each as they were just about to meet and embrace. The man who commissioned the work was well pleased. And was prepared to pay the painter for his work. When he suddenly noticed a detail that he had missed. He noticed a detail missing. Standing out in the painting. Above everything else in the scene. Was a starkly apparent fact. That the father. Was wearing one red shoe and one blue shoe. The father was wearing one red shoe and one blue shoe in the painting. The guy who commissioned the painting was incredulous. How could this be that the painter could make such an error? How could the painter make such an error as to paint two different shoe colors? Don't they learn that in painting 101? Don't they learn that in preschool? He asked the painter and the man simply smiled and nodded, assuring the man, yes, this is a beautiful representation of the love of God for his children. What do you mean, asked the commissioner. He was puzzled. And the man who painted the picture said, the father was not interested 
in being color-coordinated or fashion-conscious when he went out to meet his son. In fact, he was in such a hurry to show his love to his son, he simply reached and grabbed the nearest two shoes that he could find. He is the God of the unmatched shoes. He didn't care. He saw his son out in the distance coming home, and he just grabbed some shoes. He didn't care if they were unmatched. He didn't care if they were women's shoes. He just ran out to embrace his son. Now, that's just a painting, but this is a parable that Jesus used to describe God's love for us. What is the application? The first application goes along with a theme. God is a father to us, and as a father to us, he persistently desires for us to come to him. Persistently desires for us to come to him. When we come to God, he welcomes us regardless of what we have done in our past. God is full of grace. This does not compromise truth. In this parable, the son did recognize what he did was wrong, and he confessed that to his father. There is such a thing as sin and repentance. The parable shows us that God wants to be involved in our lives. Lost people matter to God. Some of you hear this, and it is encouraging. It probably encourages you that you're doing the right thing, loving your children, no matter what. Some of you might need the application that you need to call your son or your daughter or your grandchildren or maybe even someone else because it doesn't only apply to fathers and sons. Lost people matter to God. Do lost people matter to us? We're a Bible-believing church, and that's awesome. Got to stay that way. Don't compromise truth. But sometimes we can become all truth and no grace. Now, we should be 100% truth and 100% grace. Not 50-50. 100% truth and 100% grace. But don't compromise grace. We always go to one side or the other. We either compromise truth by going to grace, condoning sin, or we compromise grace by, go, we compromise grace by going to truth and, 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 and not loving people, recognizing their eyes are blinded by the devil. Lost people matter to God. Do lost people matter to us? The final application comes from this example. True story. A San Diego father, who wants to be known as Frank, believed his son a homeless heroin addict living on the streets in Denver was on the verge of dying. He's a father. He thought his son, who was on heroin, was dying. He was homeless. He was on heroin. He's dying. His name for the sake of this news article is Frank. Frank contacted Chris Connor, one of Denver's leading homeless advocates. Connor has helped parents find their lost children, but this was different. Connor said, I've never had a parent who necessarily went this far to descend into homelessness themselves. Listen to what this father was willing to do. Connor connected Frank, the parent, with Pastor Jerry Herships, whose church serves serves lunch to homeless people in a Denver park across from the state capitol. Frank, the father, described the moment he met his son on the streets in Denver. So the pastor connected the father with the homeless camp. And the father goes to the homeless camp, and this is what the father does. Frank said this. Frank said, my son has no idea that I'm walking towards him. I can see that he can't stand up without the support of a building. He would appear drunk to most people. To his dad, though, I know from past experience, 
Sadly, he's on heroin, heavy. I go up to him, and he starts to turn his back on me. The son started to turn his back on the father. The father says, I don't even care. I just grab him, and I squeeze him as hard as I can. For a week, Frank, the dad, became his son's shadow, wandering the streets during the day and sleeping on the banks of a river at night. He grew a beard, ate hand-out sandwiches during the day, and swatted away the rats at night. Meanwhile, his son got sick, in and out of the hospital, stealing to buy more drugs. At one point, Frank said this. At one point, Frank told his son, if you die, your mom and your dad die with you. We might still be here breathing, but make no mistakes, we'll be dead inside. When asked why he did it, Frank said, the only thing I could think of was just to go there, be with him and love him, show him how much his family loves him. He was willing to go, no matter what the cost, no matter what the humility, to show that love to his child. I've noticed there's nothing that my children could do to make me love them more. There's nothing they could do to make me not love them. This parable is a story of a father and a son, a story that illustrates God's love for his wayward children. How far will we go for our children, regardless of how old they are? How far does God go for us? How far does God go for us? We love him because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen. We love God because he first loved us. God took the step. Like the father in that story, not the parable, but the story about the homeless son, the, fa- the, the, the father who became homeless for a week, swatted away the rats, all that stuff. Jesus did that for us. Jesus entered our depraved world, lived amongst us for 33 years, went to the cross for us, took our sin, rose again, the power of the cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you for fathers and I thank you so much for my own father, my grandfather as well, and the many other paternal influences in my life. I thank you, Lord God, that you set up the family, which certainly could be a whole other sermon topic today. You set up the family, and you set up the family as your first institution for raising and watching over children and relationships and so much more. I thank you for that, O Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, for this parable, though, that shows your great love for us. No matter where we are, no matter how low our station in life has gone, You care about us. You love us. You died on the cross for us. You rose again. And you're chasing us down. You sent the Holy Spirit to to send your uh, grace that goes before. You send us the Holy Spirit to convict us so that we can receive you as Lord and Savior. And Lord God, there might be some watching and listening or here today. I'm sure there are who need to rededicate their life to you or surrender to you. They don't know you as Lord and Savior. They've fallen away from you. maybe, Maybe they've never surrendered to you. May today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in you as the one and only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. Pray your blessings and care. Watch over us, convict us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I just forgot to announce, I'm in the back now (laughs) to watch the computer. Uh, I want to thank Sam real quick for stepping in on the computer, but the altars are open. And if God wants to lead any of you to prayer during this closing song about anything, Come forward and pray.
Oh, sorry. 